safe to say that the news lately from many parts of the world has been about domestic unrest, disease, political violence, racial violence, economic uncertainty, climate disaster, and that's just here at home. In the current state of the world, our resident historian Felix Bonnell is wondering what role studying and knowing history has against this backdrop, and he joins us this morning. So you've been ruminating, have you? Yeah, this is a little different than what we typically do here on a Wednesday morning. You know, I try to do Northwest history stories that have some topicality. They're either around the anniversary of some events in the past or have some relevance to a current event, or they're just about something history-related happening in the news. You know, often it's a museum that's discovered something or a community group trying to save an old building or me going on and on about Memorial Stadium till the uh, cows come home. Yes. And sometimes the stories are just pure nostalgia, which is okay, of course, right? That's that's part of history's role. And I bring to the story selection my own biases toward things like old locomotives and forgotten highways and searches for long missing airplanes. You know, 19th century Washington Territory politics. How many times have we talked about Isaac Stevens on this show? I mean, dozens probably. Probably. And also, you know, the indigenous people who've been here for thousands of years. It's those stories that just aren't told often enough. I, also, I like good stories that have good characters who are alive now, especially people who are searching for something or saving something, or even just uncovering some cool stuff related to Northwest history that feels relevant. I love it when this work feels relevant. I like personally feeling relevant. I think we all like that, right? I can probably say that. Um, sometimes it's fluffy and light, of course, too. But and even along with that old school sort of local history, the locomotives and stuff, there have been times over the eight years of doing this, this history beat, where I think we've been able to share some pretty good topical stories with echoes of history in the pretty bad news and tough topics like the Muslim ban and, you know, comparing that to Japanese incarceration in World War II. We talked about the Ukraine war, the pandemic, racial violence, economic distress. We can all, there's so many earlier times we can look to for guidance as to what we might think about doing now. And that's the most valuable part of any study or even just talking about history. That last part, you know, the value of history, that's what I want to talk about this morning. This makes sense so far when I'm doing good. A lot yep. of context here. No, you've set it up. Go ahead. Okay. Um, now, you're a little bit older than me, Dave, but I want to talk about the 70s and 80s when I came of age, because I think that's driving a lot of my feelings this week. After the past few years of what's felt like living through some pretty heavy history and then what happened in Israel over the weekend, I'm old enough where World War II and the Cold War are the foundational aspects of world history that were most interesting and that I think had the most impact on daily life in the 70s and 80s when I was, you know, in, in high school and everything. The world we lived in was formed by those conflicts and that long kind of peacetime that felt like we had, we'd made, we made, we'd had made progress and we're making societal progress, leaving behind things like, you know, regional wars and race-based wars, America first and cults of personality. And I'm not forgetting about Korea and Vietnam. I'm not pretending we didn't use nukes against Japan at the end of World War II, of course, and that we didn't get tangled up covertly in countries like Iran or Chile. History is complicated. I get that. But the age I am and the fact my mom survived the Blitz, you know, the Nazi bombing of her native London as a little kid, and my dad survived the Nazi invasion of his native Poland, and then later survived a year in a Soviet labor camp before escaping, that's had a profound effect on me and how I interpret everything. That's, that's, that's a backdrop for me for everything. And I think I'm not alone that for much of my adult life, there's sort of a pleasure in revisiting the narrative of the 1920s and 30s in particular. Um, that's sort of that, that's that kind of uh, the descent into chaos after World War I. You know, all the fascism in the 30s, the economic distress of the 30s, because it was followed by the 40s with allied victory and a booming economy mm. and American cultural dominance. Yeah, we know yeah. how it ended. Yeah, beginning, middle, and then exactly. The Bur and the Berlin Wall collapsing and the Soviet Union coming down 30 years ago. It was like a victory lap for that story, an exclamation point on the end of the story. But then after about a decade, we get 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Trump era, white nationalism uh, rising again, COVID, Ukraine. Now Hamas and Israel has made all that earlier World War II and Cold War stuff seem 
not exactly irrelevant, but it feels more distant and archaic than ever. It kind of reminds me like we're looking at Napoleonic history now with cavalry and rowboats and stuff. Like it doesn't really, I don't feel the analog to, to anything that we're experiencing now. Is that... Does that, yeah, does that ring a bell? Does that sort of any resonance? Well, I think for you? our generation, you're a little, yeah, like you say, you're younger than uh, and I am, but uh, our worldview, I think, was formed, yes, by the aftermath of World War II, where America emerged undamaged and victorious and a running, we had a Pax Americana. But yeah. over time, that, that always fades. Empire never lasts. But. So, but is there any value? Is there? It seemed like ten years ago. It seemed like before nine eleven in particular. You could look to the thirties and the forties, like, oh look, we had this economic distress. Let's do this in reaction to oh, you mean, using history as a way to try and figure out what to do now. Yeah, because that's that's the sort of subtext of a lot of stories I try to tell on this show. Are like, yeah. here's some interesting things that happened, like whether it's a Whitman massacre back in the eighteen forties, which had religious violence, territorial violence. I mean, you could even you might try to draw some parallel between what was going on here with the indigenous population. And the religious people coming here to convert them to Christianity mm-hmm. and what's and going Israel. on. But I mean, it's people territorial have. differences. Yeah, yeah. People have. I mean, the Palestinians are arguing we were the indigenous people and we were colonized by the, by the Israelis. Yeah. But if you want to know what role history is playing now, I, I think uh, history clearly fuels the justifications of each side for these conflicts. And it's a discussion, unfortunately, that I think leads nowhere. Uh, I remember when, when I visited Israel, the first thing that they do is take you to Jerusalem and show you the uh, ancient baths that were used by the, uh, by the ancient Jewish people who were there, what, 5,000 years ago, saying, this stakes our claim to this land. Yeah. And the Palestinians saying, okay, maybe, but when this new generation of Jews moved in, we were already there. And the, when you start arguing over events that can't be changed, like history, yeah, uh, you're doomed co- to conflict. I think at, at some point, regardless of what the history says, don't ignore it, of course. Learn from it yeah. if you can. But if, uh, if you start arguing over who was right and who was wrong 200, 2,000, 10,000 years ago, you're going to end up fighting. I, I think at some point you have to acknowledge the situation on the ground and move on from there. Yeah, yeah, because I think making those sort of analogs, whether it's you know the Whitman mission in the 1840s, mm-hmm. it has a potential of being kind of glib and oversimplified, where you, where you just sort of take away just whatever your interpretation is. I yeah. think you're, and that's that's a key point. You're talking about that sort of uh, alternate facts kind of version of history, where there's different interpretations that are equally valid, yeah. probably. I mean, we to were, the people interpreting, it's valid to them. We were born into a world that that had uh, that had a. a you know, a thousand years of history before it. I, I, yeah. When, when we start talking about, uh, you know, wh- wh- what's your tribe? My tribe was being an American suburbanite. I mean, that was basically <laughs> yeah. my culture. Exactly. My parents were from uh, Italian and German extraction. They brought their culture with them. They could trace it back to, a, you know, an indigenous tribe somewhere in, in Europe, probably. Yeah. Um, but are we going to argue over that or are we going to try and deal with the issues that we are we are facing today? Because that's the danger now with what's going on in Israel is this whole new generation is being introduced to this level of violence that we haven't seen for a while. Yeah. And it, it just spawns a whole nother couple centuries of trying to process that and move beyond that. Because you, it, the hope is that someone emerges and is able to articulate exactly what you said. The past is the past. What are we going to do about the future? How are we, how we going to get past these old conflicts that just mean more death and destruction and get to the, the good parts? I, I guess the the... Optimistic lesson I draw from the whole World War II uh, uh, era is that 
Japan, Japan surrendered. I mean, suffered a humiliating defeat. Yep. Now they're a rich country and an ally. Yeah. Uh, we lost in Vietnam. Yeah. A lot of bad blood there. Yep. But now they're a prosperous country and an ally. And you can look at all sorts of products, not just clothes anymore, but sophisticated products and it says made in Vietnam. Whoever yeah. thought, right? Uh, and I'm going to talk about this in this morning's commentary, in fact. Sometimes right. you've got to acknowledge what is, not what you wish would be. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Felix Pinnell. Right now, we're going to head to Austin, Texas, where legislators are debating school vouchers. I thought that would be a slam dunk for a red state, but it turns out the issue has actually divided Republicans. And as part of a hidden agenda, I talked with CBS's Chris Fox, who's in Austin. It's interesting. Uh, Texas could be the uh, 32nd state to pass a a school choice voucher program. Uh, We're now in the third special session call. In Texas, they meet every other year. Uh, every odd year, and they meet for 140 days from January to June. And uh, now we're in October, and we're in the third special session. One of the governor's top items is is to pass a parental choice uh, school voucher program. Uh, basically, uh, the, the Senate's version of the Texas Senate's version of it would give parents access to $8,000 to send their kids to private schools. Hmm. Now, uh, opponents, uh, in this case, the Democrats and Rural Republicans in the House oppose it. Uh, Democrats say that it just takes money away from already underfunded schools. Texas is about $3,000 under the national average for per-pupil uh, per spending. And so the, the idea is taking money away and sending it to private schools is just going to hurt the public schools even more. Uh, House Republicans, it's interesting, oppose it. Because they're generally from rural, uh, a, a vast majority of them are from rural areas of Texas, rural counties. And rural counties don't, don't have a lot of private schools. And also, they're, they're rather small towns are kind of uh, run around their, their public school system. Sure. Uh, is a great deal of, of their uh, economy. And so, you know, Governor Abbott has been hell-bent on getting this passed. We're now in three special sessions. It failed in the regular session uh, in, in, in the House Texas House even going so far as to putting an amendment on the budget or attempting to put an amendment on the budget that would have uh, put an end to any spend, any public dollars going to private schools. And uh, and then they actually killed the bill itself. So with the Republicans divided here, um, what does that what does that mean? Because our interest in Texas is how they're going to vote in the next election. Uh, Does this have are there any tea leaves here that you've been reading? It's interesting. So this is one of Governor Abbott's emergency items. He's also getting pressure uh, not only from local uh, uh, PACs in Texas, but nationally uh, to to get this school voucher bill passed. And so he's already said uh, he'll keep calling special session after special session until they pass it. Uh, The other idea was that uh, after the fourth special session call, he'd then start focusing his efforts on primarying out the House Republicans who are voting against him. So they're taking us to November to our, the primary season uh, to try and get rid of the people that are voting against him. So it, it, it should be interesting to see if there is some sort of carryover uh, regarding a, a really? division in the Republican Party. So, I mean, uh, looking at this from the outside, is this basically a mechanism for purging the Texas Republican Party of its moderates? Yeah. Uh, that's what it definitely feels like. Uh, it, it is. Uh, uh, it's interesting to watch because the Republicans in both the House and Senate have a supermajority. There's, there's almost nothing the Democrats can do. So it's, it's been interesting to follow this also from a Democratic perspective because 
they're saying almost nothing, <laughs> you know, the, you know, especially during the impeachment trial when the attorney general and, and lieutenant governor were going back and forth at each other, sniping at each other. Um, uh, the Democrats are basically just not saying a word. Uh, they are saying something about school vouchers because they've been opposed to it. Uh, uh, the idea that there's a thought that the, a lot of this funding for this, a lot of effort pushing for these school vouchers is coming from two of the richest oil men in the state, Ferris Wilkes and Tim Dunn, who have uh, set up several uh, uh, political action committees to fund a lot of these uh, 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 Republican uh, candidates. And, uh, and they're the ones who are pushing for privatizing of, of public schools, uh, and the argument being they'd like to see more Christian private schools in the state of Texas. Aha. Uh-huh. Reporter Chris Fox in Austin. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. I think most people agree this would be a good time for Congress to get its act together, considering what's going on in the world. But, of course, there's no Speaker of the House, and things seem to be paralyzed. Republicans are meeting behind closed doors, attempting to come up with a uh, uh, choice that would get all the Republicans to vote yes. So I called up CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland, who has his ear to the door figuratively, and asked him what he's been hearing. Yeah, I got my first big indicator of what's going to happen. I asked Kevin McCarthy how he felt things were shaping up, and he went on this unbridled argument about how the interim speaker should be given more power to reopen the House floor. That's not the best sign. This is going to be wrapped up quickly, neatly, or efficiently. This is going to be a while. Hmm. Well, I mean, is he right? I, I keep hearing that the, the House can vote to empower anybody they want could they do say you know for the next uh, 30 days you get to exercise all the rights of a speaker they sure could and they may have to because there's a government funding deadline that is sneaking up on us about 30 days away and i'm telling you dave i wouldn't rule out the prospect that this speaker vote takes weeks not just days and here's why i mean it's simple game theory there's two prominent candidates steve scalise house majority leader louisiana jim jordan House Judiciary Chair, Trump acolyte from Ohio. They both have a base of support. They both have endorsements from more than a dozen of their colleagues. One of them has to run the table to get this speaker nomination. And unless one of them drops out, the other can't. And what's the incentive to drop out right now? Is there any indication that Trump himself is working the phones here? A little bit. I mean, he had, giving Jim Jordan an unequivocal endorsement does help in a Republican uh only race, but it's not a silver bullet because one of the issues here is there are majority makers. There are Republicans in Biden districts, in blue areas, suburban New York City, suburban L.A., Philadelphia, who really don't want to back a Trump endorsed candidate because they've got a purple district. So it helps around the edges, but it doesn't give Jim Jordan a clear path. So if he's picking up the phone and making calls, maybe it helps on the edges, too. But it's not going to push Jim Jordan through. Is there any indication that the crisis in in Israel has changed this equation at all? I think that's why Kevin McCarthy came out last night and told us that we need to have an interim speaker who can move resolutions to denounce what happened in Israel, get aid packages to Israel readied on the House floor. I think it's a kick in the pants to members to want to solve this thing sooner, but it doesn't change the fundamentals, which is this is simple game theory. One of the two has to drop out for the other to win. And there's just no incentive structure to change the next few years of House Republican politics to more expediently get to a vote. Yeah. And on that little uh, trial balloon that McCarthy himself floated on the Hugh Hewitt show saying, well, if called, I would serve. Uh, Is that going anywhere? 
So, yeah, and I talked to David Valadeo, a Republican who has a neighboring district in California, Kevin McCarthy, and one of the two remaining House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Valadeo says he thinks it's going to happen, that eventually Kevin McCarthy's name is going to be put up there formally as a nominee in the internal meetings. Really? Kevin McCarthy is not going to get the 217, David. The, 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 the eight defectors who voted him out are not going to change their minds or go back on that. It would be politically uh, suicidal for them to do so. But Kevin McCarthy sure does muddy up the waters, doesn't he? He makes it less um, clear how Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise gets the, univer- the universal support of House Republicans if Kevin McCarthy's out there siphoning off a few supporters, yeah. too. There are 221 House Republicans. They need 217 of them to line up behind one guy. Kevin McCarthy's name even being bandied about is counterproductive for that mission. CBS Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarland. So the the possibility of a three-way race for speaker exists, and that brought to mind Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, uh, of course, running for president. He was, he was going to run for the uh, Democratic nomination, but announced this week that he will run now as an independent, leaving the Democratic Party. And so the question comes to mind, how is that going to affect the race? Would this campaign siphon votes away from President Biden, uh, former President Trump, or both? That's what I asked McFarlane. You don't have to siphon off many to be impactful in this country in the Electoral College. And he may siphon off just a few, but just a few does mean something. There was a lot of heartburn here in Washington among Democrats when RFK Jr. was thinking of being a Democratic candidate to oppose President Biden. Now that he's talking about being an independent, there seems to be more heartburn from the Republicans that he could siphon off some of those Trump supporters, those populist voters who are looking for a change agent in Washington. Um, I would expect both parties to do their best to marginalize RFK Jr. because he's a variable that neither of them is comfortable with. Yeah. So uh, back to the speaker's vote, your best guess, when do they convene and start casting ballots? First, they got to argue over the rules. I think the, the, the Queensberry rules are going to try to play with today of how do we go about conducting this vote internally? That's going to suck up some time. And this is a binary thing, Dave. One of two things happens. Somehow Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise figure out how to join as a ticket. You know, one as the speaker, one as the majority leader, and, and use that as an exit ramp from a very long debate. Um, the other alternative is that this goes on for days, if not weeks. Because if they don't team up, why would one drop out? And neither of them has the support of those moderates that will get them to 217 right now. And here's the tricky thing, Dave. You've got to team up as a ticket. Who's on top? Who's on the box? <laughs> the, they should print their campaign logo in like a circle. That's what there you have you to do. Yeah. CBS correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, thank you. Thanks, Dave. And for your daily dose of kindness, brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Of course, hearing many heroic stories coming out of Israel, of people volunteering their time, uh, Americans stuck in Israel uh, who have medical backgrounds, volunteering their time in hospitals. I know CBS News, uh, Nora O'Donnell has been over there covering that. So to plenty of stories of hope coming out of that horrific situation. I want to turn our attention to a, a woman who wants to bring smiles and kindness and help them bloom. 
boom in her community. This little adventure has been going on for a little over five years. Hillary Bateman is the owner of Little House of Flowers. It's a family-owned flower business with two locations in San Diego. And she says she started out knowing almost nothing about flowers, only what came from going to the farmer's market, picking her favorite stems, and putting them in a vase at home. She told the local station NBC7. I was going through a really difficult time in my life, and I needed a change, and flowers made me feel good. Bateman says her dad, who passed away, used to buy flowers from local florists and take them to different people and places as a surprise. She was inspired to not only start her own flower business because of that, but also pay it forward with acts of kindness. When we deliver flowers, everyone smiles. If someone's having a bad day and, you know, they're outside and they see flowers, it's just a very natural way to change your attitude. About a year ago, she and her team started placing one handcrafted bouquet with a take-me note outside of her shop every Sunday afternoon. I just thought, what a nice thing to do if we could make a bouquet and just leave it outside for someone to take randomly. For Bateman, it's something that she's happy to do, makes her happy, and she wants to make sure no flower goes to waste. I love giving back. And I think um, when I started this, it was a hard time. So I made it through to the other side with flowers. And those who find those special flowers, she says, sometimes post online or leave a note. And sometimes they don't. But she says she hopes every flower ends up in a home of somebody who needs it. Filling in for G. Scott on the Jim Ursula Show is Travis Mayfield. And here he is now. Good morning. The city has been trying to return from its pandemic hangover, but the Seattle Public Schools are still seeing this massive drop in enrollment, something like 5,000 students, 1,100 just this fall. You have school-aged children. Are you are you hiding them somewhere, or are they going to school? They are in the public school system, but I'm watching some of their friends and classmates flee to the private school system, and each year I see more and more of them doing this, and it really does worry me because of the way that the funding formula in this state works. It's per pupil, per classroom. Right. And that's where the dollars come from. And when those kids are no longer there, guess what? That school gets less money, less resources. And guess what? The parents then are like, oh, well, maybe I should take my kids out and put them somewhere else. And and it's genuinely an equity issue as well, because obviously a lot of parents can't afford to pull their kids out and put them in, you know, the Catholic school up the hill or down the street, because that's a lot of money. So it's the, the kids who can afford it and can, you know, help with the PTA and those kind of things that those are the families that are fleeing the district. So you hear that 5000 student number, but in dollars, that's even more significant right. for the school district. And then some districts have to consolidate as a result, right? That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, at least we know where they are, though. For a long time, they were saying it's a mystery. We don't know where the kids went. But so it that that's pretty much it. They've left the public school system and gone to private schools. And the question is why? Why are they doing this? And then what can the Seattle School District do about it? I, here's an example. So last year, at the beginning of the school year, our next-door neighbor also has a kindergartner, or I would have been a kindergartner at the time, and we had a kindergartner. Our two boys are best friends, have known each other since babies. They were both planning to go to the elementary school, the public one, in our neighborhood. The strike happened, if you remember that, the mm-hmm. teacher strike happened, and that 
family immediately decided not to send their kid to the public school and instead went to the Catholic school that's just up the hill from us. And guess what? They are now on the PTA of that Catholic school. They've mm-hmm. got the sign in their front yard. They actively recruit other people in the neighborhood. And that and this is no shade on the teachers union, but that was a family that absolutely would have participated in our public school system. That kid would have gone on. They would have been on the PTA donating. That is a huge loss. And that's what's happening across the district. Well, I mean, I don't, that's perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. I do not blame them. I mean, mean, part of the part of having your kid in school is it frees you up uh, to work or whatever you else have to do. And you have to rely on that every single day. I mean, I've got I've got two grown daughters now who are raising their kids. And I could tell you when uh, school is closed for some reason or the daycare person is absent, it's a crisis. Absolutely. How do do I get to work? What do I what do I do with my kid? And uh I think the teachers union needs to factor that in because long term, yeah, you, you you will see this exodus continue. That's exactly right. And then you look at the test scores and you see that kids are still struggling. That uh, you know, Danny West needs column this morning in the Seattle Times call it a pandemic hangover. It's not just in the number of kids who are leaving public schools; it's also in those test scores. And unfortunately, it's an equity issue there as well. A lot of Asian kids and white kids have begun to recover in math and science. Black kids and black uh, are not, and and th- that is a huge. Huge issue in school. So once again, parents are left to go, well, if my kid's not recovering, what should I do about it? Well, there's a charter school just down the street. Right. There's a Catholic school just down the street, and they do one-on-one tutoring. Um, where am I going to go if I can afford it? Yeah, exactly. So whose responsibility is it? Because what you're describing is a public school system that over time will become the system of last resort. That's right. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, and that's why you've got to stop this now. Figure out, A, why the families are leaving. Not just anecdotal, not just me saying, hey, our neighbor left because of the strike or this family went because they couldn't get tutor. Actually ask families, do a survey. The district can do it. They have the Mm -hmm. staff. They've got the bureaucracy and then start targeting, start figuring out, fix the problems that parents are saying that they have with this district and then start genuinely marketing. We have an actual sign, a physical sign that's in our front yard that says proud Montlake family. Mm -hmm. And like I tell anybody and everybody, Montlake is a great school. We love our school. Come to our school. You know, put your kids in our school. I see kids at the neighborhood playground and I'm like, are you going to Montlake? Like, and I am probably not alone in doing that, but the district needs to be doing yeah. that. Is there any deal breaker for you? Where you would say, I've had enough? So it's very interesting. Right now, we also have a fourth grader who I am now, we're thinking in our brains about like, you know, that fifth grade, middle school. Where do we go for middle school? Do we stay in the public school system? I'm going to start the round robin of we're going to a U-Prep open house. We're going to a SAS open house. I've been emailing with Lakeside because I'm like, I need to do my due diligence. And if one of these schools impresses me more than our neighborhood public school, even though public schools are a value for our family... Will I be plucked out? And if they can pluck our family out, Mm -hmm. they can pluck any family out. You're saying they have to compete. Yeah, they do. Yeah, Yeah, they do. Travis Mayfield, who joins Ursula this morning at 9 o'clock. 836 Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk about the Manny Ellis case. Eyewitnesses are now telling the jury about what they saw those three Tacoma officers do during the confrontation that ended in the death of Manny Ellis. Carnage Radio's Kate Stone is here with an update on the trial. So what, what did they see? 
Yeah, Dave, we heard from Sarah McDowell and her former boyfriend, Keon Lowry, yesterday on the stand. They described police as the aggressors, contradicting what the officers had told detectives and dashing the defense claim that nobody saw how this fatal interaction began. McDowell and Lowry say they saw officers Christopher Burbank and Matthew Collins sitting in a patrol car when they confronted Ellis, who was walking down the street. Both of them said that Ellis appeared calm. Here's what Lowry said. They were conversating as in someone got his attention that he was walking, no ugly demeanor or anything, just like someone got his attention. They said that's when things started escalating. They couldn't hear the conversation, but according to both of the witnesses, Ellis was walking away when one of the officers opened the passenger side door quickly, knocking him down onto his knees. And McDowell said this. Started punching Manuel in the face over and over again. And she also said that the officers were physical as soon as they had knocked him to the ground. He like grabbed Manny and like body slammed him onto the ground. And Ellis actually died in that encounter, the Pierce County Medical Examiner ruled his death a homicide caused by oxygen deprivation from the physical restraint. Prosecutors allege that Ellis told police at least seven times he couldn't breathe, but they continued to apply force. The officer's att- defense attorneys have spotlighted the medical examiner's finding Ellis had a potentially lethal level of methamphetamine in his system as an alternative explanation for how he died. He also had a heart condition, but it really speaks to one of the central arguments of the case, which is, was Ellis being aggressive, combative, trying to break into other cars, which is what the officer said in their report when they confronted him. And according to these two eyewitnesses, that was not the case, which is a key point of the defense. So it really kind of pokes holes in that. However, the defense did point out that the recollections of these witnesses have changed over time. Now, granted, it has been three years since this happened. And also they pointed out that McDowell, when she was on a in a Facebook exchange with someone online, she had a what she calls a typo saying she was lying to testify against the officers. And this is what the defense attorney said to her. Says that you're going to lie when you get on the scene. Right. And that's what you put down. That's what it says, yes. That's yeah. what I wrote. And do you have any evidence whatsoever that you corrected this typo? I don't know. But she said that she meant that she was dying, dying. to yeah. testify against the officers. So really, the defense was focused on trying to point out that... Lowry and McDowell were kind of far away. They were behind the patrol car. They were filming. It's difficult to see exactly what was going on. They couldn't hear anything. They had music playing. They had their two daughters in the backseat. It was a very chaotic scene, and some of the details have changed. McDowell originally identified one of the officers as being the first one to to, uh, get physical with Ellis. She then identified a different officer. So really, the eyewitness testimony has been a central point of the state's case and the defense is doing what it can to discredit that in order to you know, push forward their yeah. theory of the case that it was in fact the meth and that it was a lawful stop because he was in the act of being aggressive and violent. And of course they're, they're trying to diffuse the influence of that video Indeed. Which, which only shows the death. Now for how long were these witnesses observing the scene before the confrontation? Are the officers saying that even before the witnesses saw anything, 
they had caught Manny Ellis trying to uh, break into cars? So that's what's interesting. The defense has said that no one saw the initial contact between the two officers. But this eyewitness testimony yesterday says that they did, in fact, see the moment that Manuel Ellis was called over, they said, to the patrol car by these Mm -hmm. officers. It appeared they gestured or or called over to him. He walked over. They had a conversation with the officers still sitting in the patrol car. And that refutes the defense's claim that no one really saw this initial contact. It is important to note that part is not on video. Neither is the later part of the interaction where Manny Ellis actually passed away. Timothy Rankin arrived. Officer Rankin arrived to the scene and, according to prosecutors, put his knee on Ellis's upper back, which they say led to his death. Now, there is another eyewitness It's unclear at this point. We don't have a schedule of who's testifying, but Seth Cowden was also at the scene, and he's the third eyewitness that the state is basing a lot of their case on. So if he does testify, it'll be interesting to see how his account matches up with this one. Also important to note, this video did not come out until three months into the investigation into Manny Ellis' death. Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.